Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The late Senator John McCain once lamented the fact that the average mid-grade military service member earned so little he or she could qualify for food stamps. But that was nearly a generation ago. Now the same people make up a big exception to the stagnation in middle-class wages. For what's going on, Navy Commander Brendan Stickles, at the moment a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution, he joins me in studio live. Commander Stickles, good to have you in. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you having me. And you have done a deep-dive study of wages in the military. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? That's a, uh, that's a great question. So my, my previous job, I was a part of a squadron in Whidbey Island, Washington. We are an EA-18G Growler Squadron, uh, deployed aboard the USS Eisenhower. And I would spend about 30 minutes with everybody that uh, walked in the door and joined the team. And uh, I found anecdotally that uh, my sailors were just incredibly qualified. They were slightly older than when I joined the Navy. They were more well-educated. They were more mature. And they were more appreciative of the opportunity to serve. Um, And over time, I correlated that, frankly, to some of the student loan debacle going on in the United States and uh, and the economic crisis. We're, uh, as a country, we're almost $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. And then in the uh, in the wake of the uh, the economic crisis, people appreciated the job. So people that are already predisposed to public service looked at the military as a, a venue for social mobility and middle class stability. And uh, I was the beneficiary of that. So when I got to Brookings and got to uh, take a deep breath and uh, get out of the cockpit and spend a little time thinking about it, I looked at it and the uh, results I found were really, really interesting. Yes, uh, you have compared the wages of those at the mid-grades in the military with middle-class wages of, I guess, middle-grade people in the private sector and contrasted that with wage growth in the two domains as well as with wage growth at the high and low ends of the overall income. If, That's right, Tom. If I made that all straight. Nope, you sure so, did. Tell us, uh, tell us some of your findings. So just like in the military, the goal is to surround yourself with uh, people smarter and more talented than you. So um, I've been reading and following a, a scholar at Brookings, Richard Reeves, who has an initiative called the Middle Class Initiative. And he found that the top and bot- bottom quintiles of America since the 70s have, wage has grown at a, a reasonable pace. So in the, in the mid-70s, 78 and 79% respectively. He also takes out the top 1% of America, which makes the numbers make sense. If you put uh, Jeff Bezos and Oprah Winfrey in the data, it tends to skew it a little bit. So, uh, so he removes them and then looks at what wages are doing in America. And those middle uh, three quintiles since the 70s have grown at only about 46%, which everybody is feeling, right? Everybody is feeling that the middle class is getting left behind in America. You compare that to what happened in, in my situation and that it, it all points to 2008. So in 2008, September of 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapses and uh, as kind of the, uh, the, the choke point of the financial crisis, that was almost exactly the same time as the surge was going on in Iraq. And then unfortunately, deaths started to tick up after that. It became more dangerous to be in Afghanistan than Iraq in the 2008-2009 timeframe. So that put a political pressure to raise wages for the active duty military, frankly, rightfully so, while the middle class was was stagnating or declining. So for, I think the first time in history, sailors have never been known for uh, for getting paid well. Um, and I think that historically it's 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 the narrative is good benefits with it with. Uh, not great wages. Well, in 2009, those two curves passed each other. And um, my my argument is that that's a good thing and a great thing as we pivot the military back towards great power competition and technological innovation. We need to compete uh, with with some of the best best people, um, but it is something to recognize. And just a couple of the numbers here. What is the average wage in the class of 
service member you're talking about, you and it. does that include all of the fringe benefits? And so if not, what would that add to it? So that's a, that's the uh, that's the literally million dollar question. So the, so I made uh, I, I I took a pass basically at, at some of the more complicated, and I just looked at base pay for an E5. So for me, an E5 is an important rank because that was my my upwardly mobile, really talented sailors. By the time they finish their first enlistment, are usually an E5, so a second class petty officer in the United States Navy. There's exceptions to that. I had a uh, um, a young sailor. And she was a superstar and was in a leadership position. She made E5 in about two and a half years. And so she's kind of the uh, the one side of the bell curve. But generally speaking, at the end of your first enlistment in my service in the Navy, a lot of people are at E5. So in 2018, uh, you're looking at about $31,000 in base pay. Uh, that is about two percentage points higher than the median salary in, in the United States. I completely punted, and that's just base pay, I completely punted on, uh, on some of the more difficult calculations, but I think, um, uh, th- and this is where the middle class initiative at Brookings can look at the military and, and gain some lessons, because in the military, we obviously have free health care that's covered. Um, I use free in quotations because we're obviously paying for it with uh, with our service and with some other sacrifices. But we have healthcare covered. We have a, uh, a zip code adjusted housing allowance that's also tax free, which is an enormous benefit. And then there's also the training opportunities that really is has been was the rocket ship for social mobility in the wake of World War II. The Stickles family, my grandfather, the original Ensign Stickles, was an orphan in New York City, served in World War II, then went to Manhattan College on the GI Bill and created my family where it is. And so that model still exists with the post 9-11 GI Bill with one even more important exception. The, the question that, that, that people always ask is, hey, are your children going to do better than you? Like that's a, a, a famous survey question. And the GI Bill, we're allowed to transfer to our children. So, hey, you come into the military, you serve. We're going to pay you a fair wage. We're going to train you for your job. We're going to take care of your medical and your housing. And we're going to educate your, ch- your child. That's, the, that's literally the formula for middle class social mobility. And uh, I'm proud to be, be a part of it. We're speaking with Navy Commander Brendan Stickles. He's a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution. And could an amplifying factor here be that, say, you are deployed, say you're on a carrier as you were, and uh, you get to put it crudely, three hots and a flop in addition to your salary. So is there a great possibility of really socking away a lot of savings early in a career that maybe some people out in the private sector don't have the opportunity to do, which is amplifying benefit down the line? So, Tom, I appreciate uh, that, but uh, sailors in port have never been known for saving money, as you might imagine, um, but you're exactly correct. So, the controversial line that I put in the article, I said, nobody should join the military or stay in for financial reasons. And that got, and some people pushed back on that. They were like, no, like financial reasons are, are a reasonable motivator. I should have, I should have said solely for financial reasons, because if you're joining the military for financial reasons, you're going to be woefully disappointed. That, that deployment you're referring to, I traveled about 50% of the time for a year leading up to a seven-month deployment. So, And with three little kids and a wife at home, like how much money would, would it take for you to not see your kids for seven months? Like, If, if that's the logic you're applying, you're, you're going to be in a, uh, in a difficult position. But for a young sailor in mil- middle America with a high school degree who's looking to better his life and then better his children's life and serve the country, um, it, it does provide a unique, uh, a unique opportunity. And the Navy is, is reasonably good at encouraging uh, savings and encouraging responsible decision-making. Uh, I'll come back at a different time and talk about the blended retirement system, which is, uh, which is implemented this year, uh, which um, there's about only two weeks left to opt in for, for those eligible to do so. And so that'll change some of the financial dynamics over time. That, that that's part of what I'm looking at. Uh, but you're you're absolutely correct. A lot of sailors come home from uh, from deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan and are hopefully happy, healthy, and proud of the job they did, and uh, with with some extra money in their pocket. 
Sure, at one time they would buy Kenwood receivers at yes. the PX, and now they buy iPhones, I guess. What about the implications for military budgets and recruiting, two yeah. of the issues that are cross-military and not just centered on the person? No, you've got it. So that was the, um, that was, that's the real driving force behind, uh, behind the project I'm working on. I want the military to compete with Amazon, who's going to move right next to the Pentagon, with, with technology firms in Silicon Valley. I, wanna, I want us to continue to compete for, uh, for the best and brightest and then retain the people that are the most upwardly, upwardly mobile. And that costs money. So one-third of the, of the Defense Department's budget right now goes towards personnel. If you look at the whole of government, it's over a trillion dollars if you include the Veterans Administration, and that's a lot of money. Like, don't get me wrong, that's obviously a, a, a big chunk of change. My argument is, is that the forces, we need a smaller, more lethal, more capable force. If you look at the numbers of people in serving in my service in, in the United States Navy, as of yesterday, there was 329,867 sailors on active duty. There is 326 million people in America. So it's almost exactly one-tenth of one percent of Americans are currently serving in the United States Navy. To keep that number as low as it is, which is about a third of what it was in the 80s as a percentage of population, to keep that number low but still keep the product they're producing high, you got you got to pay them and you and, and you got to compete. And then people like me, you got to keep pilots from going to FedEx, you got to keep pilots from going to Delta, and uh, you got to keep talented people in the Navy. And that's expensive. Um, but as we as we solve some of the other middle class problems as a nation, we'll continue to tweak the military. Navy Commander Brendan Stickles is a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was great. I appreciate the opportunity. We'll post a link to his publication and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Still to come on Federal News Radio, it may be almost 2019, but at least one federal agency still relies on a lot of paper processing. But first, the shutdown of more than a dozen departments and agencies continues. What can we expect from Congress? Next. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 